You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. I bet you came in here this morning thinking there's going to be so much more room, finally with three services, and it looks like a lot of you decided to come to the 9.30, so sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Good morning and welcome. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I am so excited to begin this brand new series in the Gospel of Mark that's going to take us at least 11 years to get through. I'm kidding. It's not going to take that long. It is a day that I have marked on the calendar for a very long time, not only for the launch of three services, but uh, to dive into this great book of the New Testament. It's a a book that, that focuses on the most important thing that we could focus on as Christians, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to put my cards on the table here and be as straightforward with you as I can to begin this entire series and say that this is a series that we need that we desperately need, not only as uh, members, people at City on a Hill, but as Christians in general. We need to hear about and be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. If you've been paying attention at all to the world that you live in, the beautiful, wonderful world that you live in, you know that the world is not a very good place. That should not surprise you. It's full of angst, it's full of hate and hostility and confusion and contentiousness. And it doesn't seem like, I mean, I could be wrong about this, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. It's a world full of bad news. Case in point, let me give you an example. This week, a few days ago, I I, I played a little game. I went to a, 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 a news website and I just pointed at the screen at like the first three headlines that I could Just random, right? There was no science to this whatsoever. Here are the headlines that I found. Arab family of five shot dead as crime rates in Israel soar. Over 10,000 displaced in Haiti after violence escalates north of capital. Partial U.S. government shutdown just four days away as congressional standoff continues. I mean, this is the first three, right? Like, I, I didn't even try this is the first three things that I could point to on the screen, news happening in the world right now. There were also articles on crime and political scandals. I mean, it got really bad. There, were, there, were, there was one about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, you know, I, um, several articles on war. We live in a world that is full of bad news. And so I think it's very timely. I think it's very timely for us to begin a series centered on Not only good news, but the best news, the best news that we could ever imagine. Why we're studying a gospel book, I imagine for most of you is not that hard to figure out. One question you might be wondering, one thing you haven't figured out is, Pastor Derek, of all of the gospels you could have chosen, why Mark? Why the gospel of Mark? It's in my estimation, the least popular of the four gospels. The others get so much more traction for a variety of reasons. So Matthew's gospel, for example, gets a lot of love. If for no other reason, then it's the first book of the New Testament, right? So I mean, if you come to the New Testament and you want to read the New Testament like you read any other book, how do you begin any other book? 
You start at the beginning. You skip the preface because you're slackers, but you, you, right? I mean, but you, so you start at the beginning. And, and if you're starting the New Testament, that means you're starting with Matthew. Matthew is popular. I, this is my contention. Matthew is a great gospel. It was the first Bible study that we went through in the Life Bible Study series that I wrote for this church. So I love Matthew's gospel. I think it's one of the most popular in part because it just sits on prime real estate, right? I mean, it's the first one in the New Testament. And then you have Luke. Luke gets a lot of love because it's the most in-depth gospel account. Uh, if you're in Life Bible Study, you know that is true. We're on session 82 this morning. Uh, it's been 82 weeks in Luke. We'll end in about six weeks, I think, with, with session 88. But it's very in-depth. It's a very detailed account of the life, the ministry of Jesus. It begins with actually prior to his birth. It gives this whole sort of uh, uh, prequel section with John the Baptist's parents and then Mary and Joseph. And, and it's an amazing story. Uh, if you recall, Luke is a physician. He's very well educated. Uh, and as a result of this, he knows how to gather and distill large amounts of information. And so he writes his gospel based on various eyewitness accounts and collective writing that he, he pulls together and synthesizes into one beautiful, cohesive story. Not only that, but it's written to the Gentiles. So that's us, right? I mean, he explains things that would be very common knowledge for Jewish people to a Gentile audience so that we can understand better what's going on. And then, of course, there's John's gospel. I mean, John's gospel is so special, it's in a category of its own. You have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John gets his own place in the genre category because of how in intense it is. It's this masterpiece of Christology. John weaves this beautiful tapestry of all the ways that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. These three gospels, for a variety of reasons, just get a ton of love. And then there's Mark, right? The less detailed version of Matthew, the shorter gospel. You know, the, the second gospel, the, the not as polished gospel, the seemingly out of order gospel. So why did I choose it? Why Mark of all the, the, the gospels? Why did I choose Mark? I, I chose Mark because I believe it's the most fitting for our context today. Mark is known for being short and to the point. He, he doesn't try to flower it up with a whole lot of details. You can think of Mark as an action gospel. It's an action story. It's an action movie. Any any. Children of the 90s in here that love the, like, right, True Lies, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, we had it. We had it made, didn't we? They don't know how to make action films anymore. This is an action gospel. It focuses on the actions of Jesus. It's a fast-paced story for a fast-paced world that we're living in. Think about the world that we live in. Let me give you a few little facts about the world in 2023 here in America that will make you not sleep at night. The average American spends five hours and 24 minutes on their mobile devices. You ready for this? A day. And don't church it up. You guys know you're guilty. You guys know you're guilty. Maybe you're, maybe, you're maybe you're beating the average, right? But you're still probably in the two, three-hour range, if we're being honest. Americans check their phones, on average, 96 times a day, which equals out to about once every 10 minutes. I think that tracks. I think 96 is being generous to you, all right? Uh, it's being generous to me for sure. I, I'm, I'm in triple digits, no doubt. Beyond that, ADHD diagnostic rates are on the rise. And several surveys over the last several years revealed that teachers believe children are less capable of paying attention today than they were five years ago. How many teachers can testify to that? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, yeah. We, listen, you live in a world 
where there are a million distractions at every moment fighting desperately for your attention. And you, if you're just being honest, you absorb a hundred, if not a thousand of them in small chunks throughout your day on Instagram reels and Facebook stories and TikTok videos and YouTube shorts and other various social media avenues. You are being conditioned for. We, including myself, are being conditioned for quick, fast, bite-sized bits of information. And for that reason, Mark is a more natural selection, I think, for us to study as one of the gospel stories, if for no other reason than Mark is going to give you quick, fast, bite-sized bits of information about Jesus. What we're going to discover in this study, Mark is not interested in like the discourses of Jesus. If you open Matthew or Luke and you own a red letter Bible, which by the way, I hope you know this, is not red letter in the Greek, right? We added that. Uh, but if you do have a red letter, helpful in some ways, uh, and you open to Matthew or Luke, what you're going to find in certain chapters is a sea of red letters, right? I mean, it, it is like chapter after chapter of Jesus teaching on and on and on in depth and detail. You're not going to find that in Mark. You're not going to find that. You'll see some of what Jesus says, and clearly there's some teaching. You have, uh, what is it, in, in, in Mark chapter 4 and chapters 13. 13 is the Olivet Discourse. Chapter 4 is a collection of parables. But beyond that, I mean, it's mostly, Mark is not interested in the discourses of Jesus. He wants to tell you about the actions of Jesus. He doesn't really want to tell you so much on, on what Jesus said as much as he wants to focus on what Jesus did. Mark is action-packed. It's quick. It's concise. It's straight to the point. It's in your face. This incredibly awesome account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so it fits perfect into our modern context. This morning is going to be a little bit different than the rest of the series. Usually we would just jump right into the text, begin to pull it apart, begin to work through it. But because this is the beginning of a new book, and we're going to be here for some time, I want to give you some introductory thoughts on how Mark writes this gospel, on who Mark is, so that you can better understand how the entirety of it fits together. So, so that you can figure out what Mark is trying to do here in this gospel. I say all that to say that if you are a guest with us this morning, then come back next week and we're going to get into the actual story, okay? Uh, this morning is going to be a little more meticulous, but it's to set this whole entire thing up. Uh, we're going to cover, I'm just going to, again, be very upfront with you. We're going to cover one verse today. Verse one is where we are. Funny story, uh, this weekend we were, uh, I played with the worship team that came in for the women's conference and Libby, the, the main uh, worship leader, we were talking uh, as a group in the, the backstage area and she was asking about this new series and she was like, are you a verse by verse preacher? And I said, yeah. And, uh, and she said, so what are you covering on Sunday? And I said, Mark 1-1. And she was like, just one verse? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, wait, so it's like next week, Mark 1-2? And I was like, no, no. I." I do more than one verse at a time. <laughs> we, we just don't skip any verses. That's, that's kind of the idea here. Uh, but today we are going to just look at the first verse and, and, and really help set the stage for what this gospel is trying to establish with, with us. If you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1, read with me. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to just show this again. These are available, $5, very helpful. ESV, same version that I preach from, and you can take notes as well. This is verse 1. Read with me. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, at first glance, there is nothing unusual about this verse. You're probably thinking right now, how in the world is he going to spend an entire sermon on that? There's, there's basically nothing there, right? 
um, there's a lot more here than you realize. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that verse 1 functions in this story, not really as the beginning of the story, but more as a title for the story. So we refer to this as the gospel of Mark or the gospel according to Mark, uh, but this title is found nowhere in the actual book. In fact, Mark, the name Mark, at least as it refers to this author, is not even in the gospel at all. He doesn't show up until the book of Acts. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this is a, a title, more or less, that we have given the book, that history has actually given this book, the gospel according to Mark. We know that Mark, Mark authored it. At least we have no reason to think otherwise. The authorship of Mark is universally accepted by the early church. But let's talk about Mark for a moment. Who is he? So this is the same Mark, often referred to as John Mark. We learned about John Mark several weeks ago in our Ultimate Road Trip series where we talked about the missionary journeys of Paul. This was the one who, who got kind of scooped up by Paul and Barnabas when they were in Jerusalem giving the offering. They leave, they come back uh, to Antioch, and then they're sent out on their first missionary journey. And uh, John Mark goes with them, with Paul and Barnabas. For one reason or another, we're not told why, he deserts them. Uh, and this leads to the eventual split between Paul and Barnabas, sending Paul with Silas on the second missionary journey and Barnabas with Mark to further disciple him. They were family members, if you recall. Uh, later in life, John Mark, because of this discipleship and mentoring process, matures in the faith. He eventually earns the respect of Paul. We see that reflected in Paul's writings. He also becomes a very close co-worker with the apostle Peter. And history tells us that because of this close relationship with Peter, Mark's gospel that we're going to be studying is actually an adaptation of Peter's stories concerning Jesus that Peter told to Mark when they were co-laboring together. In fact, one of the earliest church fathers that we have recorded, Papias of Hierapolis, he was a bishop in what is now modern-day Turkey. He lived between 60 and roughly 130 A.D., so during the New Testament age, the New Testament hadn't even been completed yet, actually, by this point, he wrote, Mark, indeed, who became the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately, as far as he remembered them, the things said or done by the Lord. Not just a few decades after this, Irenaeus of Lyon uh, echoes the same sentiment, and virtually all of the early church accepts that Mark authored this gospel, more than likely somewhere between 50 and 60 A.D., uh, he's not only the author of this gospel, but he is the uh, interpreter of Peter. He is the one who is taking the stories that Peter shares and putting them down onto paper so that we can understand what Jesus did. In fact, uh, the early church also sometimes refers to this gospel as the memoirs of Peter. So verse 1 is a title. It functions as a title. And in this title, there are three major ideas that really define this gospel. Mark is, in other words, describing something that has taken place that is significant in human history, that is about to change everything, uh, something that has never happened before, and he does so. He describes this moment in three different ways. The first, he says this marks the beginning of a new era, the beginning of a new era. Look at the word beginning. It's the Greek term arche. It's a word that is very significant, not only in this verse, but in New Testament theology. It doesn't simply mean the beginning of this book. So he's not saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the beginning of the gospel that you are reading. He's not referring to the book that he's reading. He's referring to the actual gospel events of Jesus Christ. Matthew begins his book sort of in that way. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
He's telling you, this is the beginning of the book. This is chapter one, verse one, right? You get that sense when you read Matthew. Mark is not doing that. Mark is, is demonstrating the launch of a significant new era that is taking place. The beginning of something that is never happened in the history of humanity, a new season, something that's gonna be different than anything else. The term beginning is more in line with how we understand it in the book of Genesis and the book of John. So Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a new era, a new creation era, right? That Genesis 1.1 is describing. John 1.1 does something similar. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and God was the word. There is a moment of something new that is taking place. The word of God, who is both with God and is God, is going to take on human flesh, dwell among men, which has never happened prior to this moment. Mark is telling us that the events being recorded in this book are the beginning of a new era unlike anything that's ever been seen. And I want to emphasize that it's the beginning of this era, not the entire era. It's merely the start of it. This era that begins here is going to continue long after Mark's book is finished. In other words, the actions, the ministry, the details that Mark gives in this account are not the entirety of the gospel story, but merely the beginnings of it. The gospel will continue to spread and impact people long after Mark finishes this book and dies. The gospel is going to continue to impact lives not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, just as the book of Acts records. And then from there, it will continue across time throughout human history, from nation to nation, leading all the way up to this moment right now in the 930 service at City on a Hill in 2023. Mark's account doesn't tell the whole story of this new era because it simply hasn't completed yet. It's only the beginnings of it which explains why his gospel ends so abruptly as well. There's some controversy at the end of Mark's gospel that we will get to when we get to the end of this book concerning whether or not the last verses are really a part of Mark's original account or if they were added after. But where we know for sure Mark ended this account and the earliest manuscripts we have is in verse 8. But if you go back to Mark 16, verse 5, this is right after the resurrection. This is how the book ends. It says, in entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. By the way, don't be alarmed. People don't die and then get up. This is very alarming. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And then this is the last verse. This is how Mark's gospel ends. Verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. <laughs> what? That's not how you end a book. There's no wrap-up. There's no conclusion. But there's a reason for this. It's because it hasn't wrapped up or concluded. We're still living in this era of grace, of gospel. Verse 1 is the proclamation of a new beginning, but it hasn't ended yet. It's, it's just the beginnings of it. And this new era, secondly, is marked by the arrival of a new kingdom. I want you to look at the next important word in this verse. It's the most important word that you will hear in a church context at any point and in any time, and that is the word gospel. Gospel. Such a loaded term today, isn't it? 
Does it mean a book of the Bible? Does it mean some good thing? Is it good news? What is it? What do we mean by that? Uh, I, I mentioned a moment ago that it means good news. It's true. It's the Greek term euangelion, a word from which we get our English term evangelism. It means literally good news. But there's more to say about that, given its historical context. In other words, the way this word would have been understood by the original audience is almost certainly different than how we would understand it today. Uh, this is the kind of good news that means something far more significant than the way that we would use it in our modern colloquial understanding. When I say good news, it's often compared to kind of like, you know, important, but not like cosmically important things. Like, hey, good news, your car is not going to cost $5,000 to fix. It's only going to be $1,500. Good news, right? Hey, good news, fill in the blank. The Cowboys lost again or whatever. I don't know. We're three weeks in. Cowboys fans are already like, it's, it's, the same, it's the same old, same old. All that to say, Mark is writing not to Western modern Christians. He's writing to Roman Christians in the first century. And, and, and again, this is what history tells us. Mark doesn't tell us this, but history tells us this. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, Clement of Alexandria, two of the more, um, I think, heightened church fathers, given the work that they put uh, into recording history, they both believe that Mark wrote this account from Italy and that his primary target audience was Roman Christians. And this is, again, mostly attested by the early church. So the question is this. This is an important one. How would Roman Christians living in the first century have understood this term? How would they have understood it? It's important to note that the word euangelion, gospel, is not a uniquely Christian word. In other words, it wasn't invented by Christianity. It was a word that was utilized prior to the advent of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And so how was it understood in Greco-Roman culture prior to the first century? Let's unpack it a little bit. First, it's a word that conveys the idea of military success. Military success. It would describe victory on the battlefield. This is even true in Jewish culture as well. So if you read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, we refer to this as the Septuagint or the LXX. Uh, this is uh, a word, euangelion, found to describe the news of military success in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 9 2 Samuel 18, verses 19 and 20, both record news being delivered of military success back to the people, and it is described as gospel. Good news, people. We beat the enemy, right? We're not going to be overtaken by them. This is gospel news, good news. It conveys military success. Secondly, it would have sometimes been used to describe the birth of a divine ruler. So we actually have a transcript that dates all the way back to 9 BC, so about a decade before the birth of Jesus. On the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the famous uh, ruler of Rome, emperor of Rome, and his birth in this transcription is heralded as gospel, good news. Caesar was thought to be one of the gods, and so good news. Our divine ruler was born on this day. Most commonly, this was a word that likely was understood to mean the, or describe rather, the ascent of a new king onto his throne. Whenever a new king would ascend, it marked the beginning of a new era and a new kingdom. And this new kingdom, I mean, when a king would arrive, 
He would take power. He would establish his kingdom and dominion in his administration through his own rules and statutes and laws. And it would transform the people. And it was said to be good news, gospel, good news, which is very strange because now when a president takes power, it's said to be fake news. So I don't know how we've gotten there, but um, so this is a word that is well known to Mark's audience. But there is one notable difference, one significant notable difference. In Greco-Roman culture, gospel was always in the plural form, always in the plural form. So it was like, you can understand it as like one bit of good news among many other bits of good news. It's one thing to be really excited about among many things, but that's not true in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is always in the singular form. It's not one bit of good news among many other good things. It is the good news of Jesus Christ of which there is no other. It is the good singular news in a world full of increasingly bad news. It's the good news of military success, but not over a foreign enemy, but over sin and death. It's the good news of a divine ruler, but not a man thought to be one of the gods, but the son of the living God. It's the good news of a king who has ascended his throne, but not without first living, acting, serving, suffering, dying, and conquering death once and for all. Mark is telling you the arrival of this new kingdom is the beginning of a new era in human history, and it is marked third with the announcement of a new king. Notice the way Mark describes Jesus. There's two titles for him. I want to break each of them down. First, Jesus is called the Christ. The Christ. This new era, this new kingdom, it's marked by a new king, and not just any king, but a messianic king that the people had long anticipated in Israel. Christ, contrary to what some of you may think, is not Jesus' last name. Right? He's not the son of Mrs. Mary Christ and Mr. Joseph Christ, the Christ family. No, Christ is a Greek term, Christos. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Now, who is the Messiah? The Messiah is a figure in the Old Testament promised by God by several of the prophets to come and liberate the people, to end oppression, to bring redemption for sin, to establish God's kingdom, to rule over them as their king. This is the Messiah that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 9-6, one of our favorite Christmas verses of all time. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the same Messiah described two chapters later in 11.1, where it says, There shall come forth a stump, a shoot, sorry, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, who is Jesse, by the way? Jesse is the father of David, the greatest of the kings of Israel. Malachi 3.1 is the very words of God concerning this Messiah. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, interesting note here, just a side note. This is God in heaven 
speaking through a prophet about the coming Messiah and notice that he's speaking in first person about the Messiah. He will prepare the way for me, God says. Mark is saying that this long-awaited Messiah king of whom the prophet spoke is here. It's happening. We've been waiting for centuries. And it's, it's, it's happening now. The Messiah is here and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the child born on, who, on, on whose shoulders the government will rest. He's the mighty God. He's the Prince of Peace. And, and, and why does Matthew and Luke begin their gospel accounts with genealogies? To show that Jesus descends from David. He's a Davidic king. He's not just any king. He's a Davidic king, which means he's what? A shoot from the stump of Jesse. And who precedes Jesus in his ministry? We're going to talk about him next week. The messenger who prepares the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. In fact, Mark is going to quote Isaiah to set the story up in verses 2 through 8. He's the messianic king long awaited by the people here to establish his throne and begin a new era of gospel and grace. But he's so much more than that. He's not only the messianic king, he's the son of God. He isn't like God. He isn't merely empowered by God or God's power. He is the very son of God. I love the way the Nicene Creed states this. It's a very old creed. If you were grew up Catholic, you probably recited this, which is honestly very sad that this is the only real connection Christians have to the Nicene Creed is through Catholicism because it's what grounds us in Orthodox faith uh, and we should be familiar with it as Protestants as well, but uh, I'm going to read it. This is the part concerning Christ. It says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. Understand this, because this is, I think, something that I've heard various traditions of so-called Christianity that deny the deity of Christ, like Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Mormons, they will say things like, well, Jesus isn't God, he's the son of God, right? As if this is sort of a diminished version of God. The son of God title is not a diminished title. It's a sign of equality. It puts him in the same category. He is the very God of God and true God of true God, the only begotten Son of God. Mark, as we're going to find out, is going to record the actions of Jesus. And what you're going to notice throughout the entire story is no one can seem to figure out who this guy is. We can't make sense of Jesus. How can he do the things he does? How can he teach with the authority he has? How can he do things that only God can do? Like command the weather. How do the wind and the waves obey this man? How can he forgive sin? This is something that only God can do. He can do these things because it's, he's not only the Messiah King, he's the God above all things. He's the one who created all things in the beginning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, talking about Jesus, says, For by him all things were created. All things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, even the invisible things you can't see also created by him, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's preeminent in every way. 
He's the God above all things, who holds all things together by his power. This is who Jesus is. He's not only the Messiah, although that's a pretty big deal. He's the very Son of God, true God of true God. And his arrival marks the beginning of a new kingdom and a new era in which we currently find ourselves. We are at his mercy. And one day he will come to take all things under his dominion, whether we receive him by faith or not. This is a new era for City on a Hill as well. It's the first morning of three services. It's very exciting. Um, it's a new era for a different reason, additionally. We have for a long time here put a very high premium on the Lord's Supper. We've said that, that this is an ordinance in the Bible that is for the church, and, and you need to take it because it's really important. God commands us. It's very important. It should be prioritized. And so you need to come back at 6.30 tonight and do it then. <laughs> Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so we began thinking about that and discussing it and praying over it. And the elders talked about it. And we've decided from now on, every first Sunday of the month, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper together as a church. Yeah. <clears throat> We're still going to do it as a group in nights of worship. But it's a practice that matters, and we want to do it as a whole church every first Sunday of the month. As our servers begin to pass the bread, I want to say a couple of things to get us into the right frame of mind. Number one, this is a practice that is meant for believers. I want to be very clear about that. For believers. If you are not a Christian, we are thrilled that you are here this morning. Seriously. And my prayer for you is that this gospel that we're about to dive into over the coming months will captivate you and save you in the same way that it has saved us. But this practice is not for you yet. It's for believers in Christ. And so I would ask you to abstain if you do not identify as a Christian. Secondly, is it's intended to be taken by Christians only after good self-examination. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In fact, this is so serious. He goes on in verse 30. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. Apparently, they were taking communion with such blatant disregard for hidden sin and ill treatment of one another, they were getting physically sick and dying as a result of it. If you have some pretty heavy secret sin that you've been keeping hidden in your life, I would implore you to abstain from this. Go and confess that sin to another brother or sister who is safe and pray for one another that you may be healed as the book of James Chapter 5 compels us, and then come back at a later time and observe this after you have done those things. This is only the second course of a three-course meal. We have one at 11 as well. Go in between the services, confess your sin, and come back then. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may eat. Father, we thank you for the broken body of 
the Lord crushed for our sin, that we might stand whole and forgiven with no fear of condemnation, with no fear of judgment or wrath, but perfectly at peace with you. We thank you that Jesus took upon his own body the punishment that we deserve. Amen. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 and 26. He says this, In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What kind of covenant? A new covenant. Because we're in a new era now. A new kingdom. So we have a new covenant. And that new covenant is in my blood, he says. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And verse 26 says something very significant that, that I don't want you to, to pass over. And that is this, that when you take the Lord's Supper, you are not only remembering something, but you're actually doing something. What does Paul say you're doing in verse 26? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming something this morning as you take the bread and drink from the cup. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. You're proclaiming the gospel. The death of Jesus in our place that we might have life. The cup represents the blood of a sacrifice in the Old Testament that is given for the forgiveness of sins that washes us clean, that wipes the slate clean of all the transgression, all the sin, all the horrible things that you've ever done is no more because of the blood. It represents the wrath of God that's poured out on sin that, that falls upon Jesus as he dies on the cross in our place. I'm going to read it again. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me have yours, you may go ahead and drink. <clears throat> if you're still waiting for yours, you can take it as soon as you have it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin that washes us clean and makes us new. We thank you for this gospel era that we live in, this grace kingdom that we find ourselves in. Though things may look bad, Lord, we know that the king will come back to find his kingdom in disorder, just as the parable in Luke describes, and he will silence those who stir up trouble in his kingdom and bring perfect peace and power. But until then, God, we await you and we proclaim your death with joy and peace that comes from your spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. God bless you all. I'm so excited to begin this time with you. We'll see you next week, verses 2 through 8. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. See you next time.